0: As John mentioned, our speaker for the hour is Anthony Warns. Anthony is the uh, pulpit minister at the West Hill Church of Christ in Corsicana, Texas. Uh, He is a 2007 graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute. And one of our great pleasures with what we do in training preachers is to send them out and see them come back and watch their, their ministry grow over the years uh, so many uh, of our young preachers are here to, this weekend to, to learn and to grow, but we've followed Anthony and Andrea, his wife, for so many years now, 15 years of ministry, and certainly have watched them grow and watched them continue to serve the Lord. It's such a blessing to, to see what the Lord can do with these young men who come to us to be trained. There's an interesting connection, though, with Anthony. In most cases... Sons follow their fathers into ministry. That's really not the case here. Anthony actually came to school first, and then his father, John, followed him, as well as three additional brothers. This family holds the record, I believe, currently, at least I'm not aware of another family who has had as many from one family come through the school. And we're working on a couple of younger brothers. I think we're still working on one, one or two that might come uh, before they're finished. But uh, what a great example to encourage your dad to greater service and ministry as well. I'm sure John had a, a massive influence on Anthony's decision to come here as well. Uh, but this family has grown in the Lord, and it's so great to see them continue to doing, continue to do God's work everywhere they've gone. And so, Anthony, come preach the word to us, brother.
1: Preach the word. That's right. Did I do that right? There we go. I grew up in Colorado, and, you know, something I've noticed whenever I moved away, you kind of take the mountains for granted until you moved to Oklahoma or Texas, And then all of a sudden, my goodness, I've missed these mountains. It's been about eight and a half, nine years since I've been back. And so um, I've brought my kids. my, My three oldest kids were born here. In Colorado my fourth son has never been to Colorado until this week so I've just been so excited to get back show them the mountains and I'm I'm sure they're getting a little bit tired of, of hearing dad say hey look at that peak that peak is called this that mountain is called this here's what I did here and what I did there they're getting tired of it but I, I love those mountains and did you see this morning did you see all the snow on the mountains this morning God's creation is amazing And if you were in Jeff Miller's lesson on the flood yesterday, I I have a new respect for the mountains, a new respect for those mountains and how they were created during the flood, almost a fear and awe of how they were indeed created. But it's amazing to see those mountains. If you grew up here or if you live here, you've probably camped up in those mountains. And, And I can remember camping up in the mountains as a younger individual and late at night, Looking up and seeing the stars. There's no light pollution up in the mountains whenever you're far enough away from Denver and Colorado Springs. It's amazing to be able to look up and just be able to see God's handiwork and God's creation in the stars. And you start feeling very small whenever you see all of those stars. You start feeling extremely small And there's there's good reason for that. Scientists, NASA, tell us a little bit about where we are in space. We are 93 million miles on Earth. We're 93 million miles away from the sun. That's kind of a staggering number. I I, I can't quite wrap my mind around how how long would it take to drive or fly 93 million miles. I, I can't understand that. I can't quite get there. But it goes on beyond that. Our own solar system, the the last planet in our solar system, it's now Neptune because they demoted poor Pluto. Um, Neptune is 2.8 billion miles away from the sun. Again, that is a huge staggering number. I can't quite grasp how far away that is, but it goes beyond that. NASA, other scientists also tell us just in our own galaxy, the Milky Way, guess what? there are at least a hundred billion stars. Over a hundred billion stars in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And each one of those stars has on average at least one, at least one planet that orbits around that particular star. A hundred billion. Again, I cannot comprehend that number, but, but there's more. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is just one galaxy... Out of at least, now I've read two different numbers, NASA says over 100 billion galaxies. I've read others that say maybe upwards of 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Do you feel small? There, there, there's a reason to feel small, isn't there? We serve a mighty God. We serve one who created all of that. He's the one who created all that. So whenever you're up in the mountains or if you're out in West Texas where there's not much lights or anywhere else and you're able to get away from the city and you're able to look up at the night sky, you're able to just see, my goodness, my God is a majestic God. My God is a powerful God. Who is God that he could create all of this, all of this majesty from nothing? There's a song I I love. and and when, When I listen to the lyrics, All I can think about now is how magnificent God is. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. Our God is Majestic. His creation is majestic. It is huge. It is amazing. It is beautiful. But get this. Understand this. Try to understand this. As majestic as the universe is, did you know that you, as one of his created humans, is the Lord's greatest creation? Go ahead and turn that slide for me, if you will. There we go. How can this be? Uh, we've talked about how small we are in comparison to this universe that God has created. How can it be that you and I as humanity, as men and women, are God's greatest creation? How can this be? If you haven't already already done so, I want you to turn over to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is going to be our passage today. And as we're going to Psalm 8, I want to tell you just a little bit about the structure of Psalm 8. Um, you go through the book of Psalms and you're going to see a lot of different writing structures, a lot of different writing styles. There's a particular type of structure or writing style, though, that's called a chiastic structure, a chiastic writing structure. Now, when you hear of a chiastic writing structure, what you have, and I'm gonna show it to you here on the board in just a second, but what you have is you have a structure that is a structure in parallels. Essentially, the book ends of the particular book are gonna kind of say the same thing. And then you're gonna start moving towards the center, and as you're moving towards the center, the next group of verses are going to say kind of the same thing until you get to the middle, until you get to the middle of that particular passage. And oftentimes the middle of that passage is oftentimes the climax. And there's a lot of these in the book of Psalms. There's even some of these in other passages. Go, go study Ezra chapter 4, a narrative, and it's kind of a chiastic structure as far as history goes. And it's very, very interesting to read it under that particular scope. But let's look at this. Let's just look at the outline real quick. We have the book ends of the particular chapter, Psalm 8. You've got verse 1, and then you've got the last verse, verse 9. And what they're going to both say is the same thing. Our Lord's name is majestic. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The book or the chapter starts that way, the psalm starts that way, and the psalm ends that way. But then you start moving in. You've got verse 2, and you've got verse 3, both talking about his majestic creation, as well as verses 7 and 8, His majestic creation. Verses 2 and 3 are going to talk about human beings, going to talk about the moon and the stars, and all of these items in verses 2 and 3, we'll look at them later, are going to be proclaiming the majesty of God. Your creation is majestic and it proclaims you. But then you skip down to verses 7 and 8, and again, it's a description of God's majestic creation, but this time it's going to talk about the animal world and how those animals fit into the subjection that God, the authority that God has placed for them under the human beings. But they are both majestic. But then we get to this climax, if you will, the possible climax of this particular psalm, and we're going to see verses 4 through 6 is essentially going to say, who is man that you crown him with majesty. Now, you and I haven't studied Psalm 8 together at all. All I've done is just kind of shared with you an an outline. But looking at this outline right here, I'll be honest and say it's kind of an uncomfortable outline for me. Because we start off talking about who God is and what he has done and how amazing and majestic he is. And then it slowly starts building to this point where it turns and starts talking about you And me. I don't know about you, but I look at myself in the mirror. I look at my life in the past. I look at some of the things that I have done in my life that I'm not proud of. I think about who I am and how undeserving I am. And then I think about our Lord, and I realize that my Lord and my life, both of these conversations have no business being in the same conversation together because our Lord is majestic. And I've messed up. I've done things I'm not proud of whatsoever, yet, He has crowned me, as we're going to see here in Psalm 8. He has crowned me with majesty. He has put me in a place that I do not deserve. While we're still kind of talking about just introductory material with Psalm 8, I want you to look at verse 1 and verse 9. Our Lord's name is majestic. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me ask you a question. What is in a name? What is in a name? When my wife and I named our four children, Brooke, Owen, Lincoln, and Wyatt, whenever we named them those names, we didn't necessarily name them based on the meaning of the name. Sure, we may have consulted the meaning of the name. But we really named our kids those names because we liked the sound of those names. But in different cultures, specifically the ancient culture, oftentimes individuals would write or or name their children, not necessarily based on the sound of the name, but what the name meant. If you want a good explanation of this go read genesis 29 go read genesis chapter 30 you've got leah you've got rachel those two sisters who are married to the same man jacob and jacob loved rachel but he didn't care for her as much leah but god knew this and god blessed leah with many children and every time she has a child Go look and see what she names those children. It's based on her emotions of the time. It's based on her hope of what this child is going to bring in her life. There's a huge emphasis on the meaning of the name. The same is the case with our Lord's name. Now, you and I, of course, reading through just the English language, we see one one name. We see the name Lord, but our translators have helped us out with this. But By looking at this, you can also see that there are indeed two names for the Lord, the first one is all capitalized, O oh Lord, and our second one is not all capitalized. What are those particular names? Well, the first one is Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. This is God's covenant name to his children. This is God's name that he gave to Moses. And it's a, a name that reminds the people, reminds the people of Israel, I'm in a covenant relationship with the creator, with the Lord, with God. This is his name. But then the second one is Adon, and it's going to emphasize his position. It's going to emphasize his authority. This is how powerful he is. So let's think about this for a second. Whenever the psalmist right here is saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, what is he saying? Lord, you have created the stars. You have created everything that we see. You have power. You have authority. You have might. But Lord, you also care about me. And you want a relationship with me. And you've had a covenant relationship with your people. What is in a name? We see the Lord's name. He is a majestic Lord. And we get to serve him. So that's just kind of some introductory material Here for Psalm 8, as we go to two main points, two main points from this particular psalm that I want us to look at. The first one is this we're going to look at an unmerited promotion, man's unmerited promotion in majesty. I want us to camp on a question that David's going to have for us in verse 4. Don't worry, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 as well. But look at verse 4. It says, What is man that you take thought of him and the Son of Man? That you care for him. What is man? You could go up to the mountains and you can ask the exact same question. You can look around at the beauty of God's creation. You can look up at the night sky and you can ask that question, What is what is man? Who? Who am I? You know, chances are that just like myself, you can look at your life, you can look at yourself in the mirror, you can look at yourself in the past, and you can be upset uncomfortable, very much not full of pride as to some of the things that you have done in your life, some of the things that you know other people have seen, you do in your life. You know that you have flaws. Just like all of us have have had flaws. And this leaves you wondering, this leaves you scratching your head just as David was scratching his head and wondering who am I that you want to take care of me? Who am I that you love me So much. Let's take this a step further. God created everything that we see out of nothing. He created it out of nothing. Whereas you and I, where our actions are sometimes subpar at best, not we haven't even created a single thing. Sure, God may give us talents that he expects us to use, and then he gives us resources, he gives us us the trees, he gives us the rocks, he gives us all these different elements. That, that, he, that we are able to, to take with our talents, combine and, quote unquote, create something. But I didn't create anything out of nothing. But he did. He created everything out of nothing. Continue looking. Go back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. Look at some of the things that he created. He created the universe. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Look at verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, he created all of these things and he created them out of nothing. Look back at verse 2, he created humanity. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You not only created the sun and the moon and the stars and everything in this universe, you created humanity. Skip down to verse 7 and 8. He created the animal kingdom, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He created it all. Everything that we see, he created it all. And looking at who I am compared to who God is, causes me to realize even more that I have no right whatsoever at being the top of any list but God puts you at the top of his list. Look at verse 5. We've already looked at verse 4. Look at verse 5 again, quite possibly the the climax of this particular psalm. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and with majesty. Now if you're reading from the English or the ESV, if you're reading from the English standard version your translation is going to read just a little bit different than mine or really anyone else's because yours is going to say that we have been put directly under heavenly beings we're going to discuss that here uh, in in just a minute but um, why would there be this difference right here we see of course first that you and I have been made a little lower than God or heavenly beings he has put us on top of the list but why is there a difference between most of the translations and the ESV That word that my translation that I read from, that translated it God, that word for God is Elohim. Now, most of the time, whenever we think of the word Elohim, we think of God, right? That's who we think of. That, That is a name for God. But it is also sometimes a reference to mighty beings. Mighty beings. So it could, as we're going to investigate later... It could be that the psalmist right here is not necessarily talking about you and I being placed directly under God, even though we are under God. But we're put under heavenly beings or mighty beings. And as a matter of fact, what we're going to see here in a few minutes is in Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrews writer is going to assume that David meant angels. Because he's going to be quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And whenever he's going to quote it, as we'll look at later, he's going to quote this as you and I being right under the angels or a man being put under the angels. But here's the fact. You and I are nothing, yet our Lord has made us something. He has promoted us. We have not merited this whatsoever, but he has promoted us to something special. And we have been made just below The heavenly beings, whether we're talking about God or whether we're talking about angels, both of them would be a tremendous promotion, one that you and I do not deserve. Who would do this? Only a holy and majestic God. Only a God who loves his creation so much. You may have noticed there in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, and you crown him with glory and you crown him with majesty. This idea of crowning. When you and I are crowned with glory and majesty... You know, I think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, whenever God said, Let us make man in our image. We have been promoted. We have been crowned to a state that you and I do not deserve whatsoever. We are created in the image of God. What is man? Who am I? I do not deserve this. Yet God, He promoted me, He elevated me to a place of honor here in this universe. Again, whenever we think of crowning, sometimes we think of kingship, authority, rule. Look at verse 6, and we'll go ahead and read through verse 8 as well. Look at at some of the things that God has placed in our our stewardship. Verse 6, you make him, you make man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. You have promoted us and you have put us above all of these different things in your creation. And whenever we think about that, I think about, of course, uh, the, again, the creation week, whenever God has just created everything. Here in this world. And then immediately he said, let them, let the man and women rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he went and told the first couple, fill the earth, subdue it. I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. Adam and Eve didn't deserve that. You and I don't deserve that. Yet God, he put us there. He promoted us there. We have an unmerited promotion on behalf of the Lord for you and I as his, as he would consider his greatest creation. But there's a flip side to this particular psalm. There's a second portion of the psalm. Yes, we've just already read through this psalm completely from, from cover to cover of this psalm, but there's, there's something else In the Old Testament writings, we often read what we call a dual fulfillment prophecy. Where where on the surface, you read this particular Old Testament writing and it's already covered. It's covered right away and on its own, it's enough. You can look at Psalm 8 and you could say, you know what? Here in Psalm 8, if all we did was stop right here and say, God has promoted man. That's a fantastic psalm. That's a wonderful psalm. We're tempted to close the Bible, say case closed, we're done. But there's another side to this, and we don't really realize it until the New Testament, until the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 2, where we're going to see that instead of an unmerited promotion, this psalm is also talking about an unwarranted demotion, where you and I have been promoted, but someone else took a huge, huge Demotion. So I want you to go ahead and be turning over to Hebrews chapter 2. The Hebrews writer again is going to quote three of these verses. He's going to quote that, that climax, as I've called it, that possible climax. He's going to quote that in Hebrews chapter 2. But let's, before we get to Hebrews chapter 2, let's look at a couple of verses in chapter 1, just to kind of understand what the Hebrew, Hebrews writer might be talking about. In the Hebrews Writer version right here, and what he's writing here in chapter one, he's got an argument that he's that he's arguing, and this is the main argument: Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than the angels. Look at some of these arguments that he's already put in place. Look at verse two, where Jesus made the world. Verse two: In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also. He made the world. And the assumption that's going to come later on is, did the angels make the world? They didn't make the world. Jesus brought the world. Jesus created the world. Skip down to verse 4. Having become, still talking about Jesus, Jesus having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's greater than the angels. He is far greater than the angels. Skip down to verse 5. Look at verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. God has never referenced his angels in this way, but he has with Jesus. Jesus has been referenced this way. Look at verse 6, in verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. The angels worship Jesus, whereas the angels will never accept worship. Look at what John did in the book of Revelation. He started to worship the angel, and the angel goes, no, I'm just a servant like you. I can't accept this worship, but the angels are going to worship Jesus Christ. Look all the way over at verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Here is Jesus, and he's sitting at the right hand, the right hand of the Father. The angels aren't doing that but Jesus is. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels is the argument that's coming out of Hebrews chapter 1. And then we get to chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that God has put in submission under one particular man all of the earth. Not an angel, but one particular man. Look at verse 5 through verse 8. It says, chapter 2, starting in verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and here is our quotation from Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Who are we talking about here? Again, if we're just going off of Psalm 8 and our understanding of Psalm 8, we might be thinking we're just talking about you and I, humanity. But Hebrews chapter 1 has made it very clear, and Hebrews chapter 2 is going to continue to make it very clear. We're talking about a particular individual. We're talking about Jesus. Look at verse 9. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This man, Jesus, is much better than the angels, Hebrews chapter 1. Yet he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Remember, Psalm 8, you and I have been promoted to something that we do not deserve, and here's Jesus who deserves everything, and he has been demoted for something, again, he does not deserve. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8 says that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Christ did that for you and I. And we see that it's an act of obedience. It's an act of humility where you and I were elevated over that which we do not deserve. He was demoted, but he did it willingly. He did it for you and me to a lower state than he ever, ever deserved. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus that he would do such a thing? And who am I, that he would do it for me again psalm 8 stands quite nicely all by itself what is man that you think so highly of him yet you pair it with hebrews chapter 2 and now you have what is man that you would think so highly of him that you would send your son your only son down to die for him so that man need never taste of death can you imagine that request from the father to the son And can you imagine that humble obedience from the Son to the Father? Who would do such a thing? Only a holy God. Only a holy and magnificent Lord would do this for us. So what can you and I do about this? What, what, What can you and I do understanding that we've been promoted above anything that we ever deserve and Jesus was demoted beyond anything that he deserved? What can you and I do about this? Three... Quick points of application, and then the lesson is yours. Number one, look for our Lord everywhere. Look for him everywhere. Going back to Psalm 8, what I see is that I can find the Lord in his creation, in everything. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, I I can see him everywhere. This is not a reference to some new age religion, some new age Way of thinking that goes, hey, that tree, that mountain, that, that rock over there, that, that is God. That, that, that's not what I'm talking about, but rather it's a realization that whenever I look at the beauty of his creation and I see everything in his creation, I can see that God put it there. That God created it. That God's handiwork is in action. I can see the design that he put there. When you look at the stars, you you can understand that the Lord put them there. When you drive through those mountains, you can see the peaks and you can see the valleys. You can see the streams and you can see the trees. You can see the granite and you can see the grass. And throughout all of that, what can you see? God's handiwork. He's the one who created it. Whenever you go fishing, if you take care of cattle, if you take your dog out on a walk, you can see God's creation. You can see God's handiwork in the animal kingdom, everywhere you turn, you can see God and you can see his handiwork. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. We can see him everywhere. Look for him everywhere. Look for him in the seasons Look for him in in the seasons of your life. Look for him in what's going on in your life, the good and the bad. Look for him. Get up every morning and decide, you know, make it a game. I'm going to look for him. I'm going to see him. I'm going to see his handiwork in the world, but also in my life. I'm going to see the hard things as being something that is is good for me, that allows me to be strengthened and, and grow closer to him. I'm going to look for him everywhere. Number two, preach. Preach about our Lord. Do you preach? Do you preach about the Lord? You may not be a pulpit minister. You may not be on a paid staff at some congregation somewhere. But you know what? You can and you still should preach. Again, if we look back at Psalm 8 and we look at verse verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength, Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. Did you realize that babies are preachers? Babies just their existence. Their existence alone preach that there is a God. And there are going to be individuals who are going to argue that there is no God. They can't explain the baby. They can't explain that wonderful child. That child is not from chance. That child is a blessing. And that child is indeed a preacher of who god is look at verse three as well verse three it says when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have ordained did you know that the moon is a preacher did you realize that because that moon is a magnificent thing it's trackable for one Well, we can know where it's going to be years from now Next year, there's going to be that total eclipse, and guess where it's going? It's going right over Corsicana, Texas, where I live. I'm so excited. But it's trackable. We can track where that thing's going to be. Why? God put it there, and God made it trackable. It helps you and I with the tides. It helps farmers knowing when to plant. That moon preaches an existence of God. Did you know that the stars, they preach? They preach about God. Did you know that? Their shimmering light, their patterns, their constant presence, the directions that they gave people. Before we had compasses, you were able to look up and you were able to just kind of see, that's the direction I need to go, and people were able to know where to go. Why? Because God put them there. God made them trackable. They preach about God. Am I preaching as well as a baby? Am I preaching as well as the moon? Am I preaching as well as the stars? I need to be. We need to be, you don't have to be a pulpit minister, but we need to be preaching men, women, children alike in our actions, in our lives, and what we do. We need to be telling people, we need to be preaching to people about our Lord because you are God's greatest creation. Who are you promoting? You better not be promoting yourself, but it's so easy to promote ourselves these days. We need to be promoting the Lord. Are we preaching about our Lord and are we preaching about him constantly? Number three and finally, We need to act, act like our Lord. As I read through Psalm 8, I do not catch any signs of haughtiness from David as he's writing this whatsoever. On the contrary, he's sitting there almost scratching his head in awe and shock that the Lord would treat him in such a favorable manner. What is man? Verse 4, he was humble. And why is he humble? because his Lord is humble. Our Lord is humble. And you and I need to remember if pride starts to get in the way, if it starts to get the best of us, we need to to smother that pride with humility. We just need to get rid of it completely. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Our Lord, he was was humble. He was humble, so you and I need to be humble. How can I act like my Lord? I need to do what David is doing right here. I need to be in, in awe. I need to be humble. I need to be looking at everything around going, I didn't create this world. I didn't do this. The Lord did this, and I'm going to glorify him, and I'm going to be obedient to him, and I'm going to act like him, and I'm going to realize that he demoted himself for me, so there's no room for pride. I need to get rid of that pride. Am I allowing pride to rule in my life, in my actions, in my thoughts, in my words? I need to change that and reverse that and think, who am I? Who is man? And I need to act like our Lord. Human, you need to know that God loves you. He created a vast universe, so vast, in fact, that we have no way of truly knowing how many. I, again, I told you, some people are saying over 100 billion universes or, or uh, galaxies, and others are saying 200 billion galaxies. We, we have no clue how big this universe is. Yet here in our small part of the Milky Way... He created a planet that is suitable for life. A a planet, one planet that he created that has every single necessity that human beings might need. Trees for oxygen, an atmosphere to hold in that oxygen so that you and I can breathe, clouds to give you and I drinking water, animals and vegetables for food, trees and rocks to make shelter. He made it all in our little tiny corner of the universe. He made it all for us. Human, our Lord loves you and he has exalted you to a status that you and I will never ever deserve. And human, this is all true. Yet if you and I fail to realize that our Lord also decided to come down, demote himself, and live on this one planet that he created for a time to teach us, to die for us, and then to raise for us again, well, this promotion, it would be pointless. Absolutely pointless. Because you've sinned, I've sinned, we've all sinned, and we've all come short of the glory of God, and we all have come to a place in our life where we need the Lord to save us through his blood. And guess what? He was willing to do so because he viewed you as his greatest creation.